You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Wisconsin. Joining me as always is my good friend, Frank Madden, who's also the founder of Brew Hoop. And Frank, uh, today I typed out a hypothetical tweet as we uh, talked about the mailbag. Or no, we weren't even talking about the mailbag. We were talking about uh, Jabari Parker and the ongoing saga that surely will continue throughout the summer. Um, And I tweeted something that said, welcome to Lockdown Bucks, where we're talking about Jabari Parker for the 20th consecutive day. And when I typed it out, I held out the L's and one of our one of our followers said shouldn't you really hold out the w and he's 100 percent correct because i think that's how you would spell it if you had to spell out my yep. held out welcome because it's it's technically the, the w that's getting held out yes correct you were wrong he was right yeah i i never really thought about like typing it out if that makes any sense like i, I say it every day um and i've not been parodied uh as dean uh i think held it up for 20 seconds when he was on last week um so I, I never thought about spelling it, and today I had to spell it. So um, totally useless way to start the podcast, but that's okay. Um, what we're going to do... I was going to say, was that the story? or And apparently it was. Okay, there yeah. we go. Yeah, like Starting it, that was that that was like a Milwaukee Bucks-like start to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're, down, we're, down, we're down 20 to 11. Congratulations. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Like, I've never spelled it out before, and I was wrong. Um, all right, so today what we're going to do is a mailbag. Um, in this mailbag, uh, as you guys know, Frank is typically gone on Thursday nights. Uh, we don't have Frank on Thursday nights, which means you don't have Frank on Friday podcasts now. Uh, so what we decided to do was it seems unlikely that something will change between us recording here on Wednesday night and uh, Thursday night. So what we're going to do is record a big old mailbag and shout out to all you guys, because this is, uh, I think the largest mailbag I've ever seen. Um, (laughs) Normally Frank will prepare all the questions in like sort of groups and yeah, this is crazy. So shout out to all of you guys, but that means we're going to go for two days. So we're going to record all of it now. Um, I will probably jump on real quick and put an intro on the second part of the mailbag tomorrow. Um, if there's some breaking news, if there's something I need to hop in on, I can be sure to handle that by myself and, and be ready to go with that. But just so you know, you're going to get a two-part mailbag. It's probably going to be quite long. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. And somehow this week, we're going to have like eight hours of podcasts for you guys to uh, in, um, ingest, listen to. I don't know. Um, but we're going to keep it rolling mailbag anything you want to say before we get into this mailbag frank because i think every topic on the face of the earth is covered in this mailbag yeah i mean i think you know we got like 
8,000 questions and 90% of them are like some sad variant of like a Jabari Parker question. But um, we we do have some non-Jabari Parker questions, thankfully. Uh, we do have a lot of non-Jabari Parker questions. Um, but I figure we should start with uh, playoff-related questions. Yeah. And, and there there are games to be played. Uh, yeah. <laughs> despite the Bucks being down 2-0, uh, they are returning home. Um, you know, as, as a Bucks fan... Uh, you know, again, I feel like it's in our nature to, while we complain and, you know, act sad about just sort of the general plight of our fanhood, <laughs> there's that little bit of optimism. Always. Hey, they haven't, they haven't lost at home yet. Nope. Crowd's going to be, crowd's going to be good, you know, hopefully. The series Crowd's doesn't start until somebody takes one on start, the road. Which is like, which is not true, but um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I will, I'm a, I, like always, I will turn in, tune into the game. With, with my, my mind allowing me to envision, you know, and dream of uh, of a of a victory, and uh, and and possibly more after it, and uh, I don't know, we'll, we'll see if it happens. But yes, playoff questions, um, and we'll start with one that's kind of more like looking back at the first two games, and then we've got a number, a bunch of them are bound like rotations and kind of things like what we, what would we do, things like that. Um, but let's start with one that just sort of looks back on, on these first couple of games, and I think it's, you know, a uh, a very talk radio question from uh, Trevor Persbilla, um, and I think Trevor's last name is actually Persbilla. It's spelled differently than than Joel Persbilla, um, yeah. but it's both his handle and his like you know screen no, name. I think it's real. Name. Um, and so uh, Ghostface Trevor Persbilla asks us, are the Celtics winning the games or are the Bucks beating themselves? Question mark. Eric, name. Give me your hottest take on that. Game one, the Bucks beat themselves. Game two, the Celtics beat the Bucks. I think if you look at that first game, there was plenty of opportunity for the Bucks to beat the Celtics. Um, I thought there was, I mean, like we said right after the game, you take out a couple of those turnovers and the Bucks very easily could have won that game. And even if you don't take out some of those turnovers, you get to overtime and you execute just a little bit better in overtime and you could win that one as well. So, um, or you can win that way as well. Excuse me. I, so I would say game one, the Bucks beat themselves. They could have very easily won that game if they didn't make some mistakes. Um, game two, I thought the Celtics had a much I thought a lot of the stuff that the Celtics did was better than the first time around. I know uh, Nick Friedel, friend of the pod, tweeted out something about how the um, how the Bucks had like a hundred, I don't even know, hundred thirty less passes than the Celtics in Game One. And <laughs> come on, how do I keep walking into it every podcast? Okay, hundred thirty fewer passes uh, in that game, and it, that I, I think a number of Bucks fans like jumped on and were like, "Oh, that means the Bucks aren't moving the ball enough." But really, to me, that just meant the Celtics had nothing doing in Game One. Like they had nothing. Like they were just moving the ball, passing it around the perimeter, and hoping something would happen. And it really wasn't. While in Game Two, I thought there was a lot of purpose to their actions, and I think they kind of found out some of the ways to kind of manipulate. Manipulate the Bucks. We saw a lot more dribble handoffs. We saw some uh, dribble dribble weave in the middle of the floor. And I guess why those things are important is because going into a series against the Bucks, you want to be able to beat them off the dribble. You want to beat them in the pick and roll, and you want to be able to create three point looks. And if you just pass the ball around the perimeter and move and cut, it's not really going to work against the Bucks. You're not putting them in the spots where they really struggle. And though dribble handoffs aren't pick and rolls. 
if you don't have a real pick and roll person, that's a good way to facilitate that same type of action. Like you've seen the Utah Jazz, for example, they use a lot of dribble handoffs and that's kind of what they're doing is they're finding a way to get that little bit of an edge. Same thing with Miami Heat. So what the Celtics did there was they put the Bucks through a bunch of dribble handoffs, which is similar to covering a pick and roll. And then they sometimes did double handoffs where it'd be the weave action in the middle. And I just thought the game plan for the Celtics in game two was, I mean, not exquisite, which I mean, it shouldn't really be a surprise with Brad Stevens, but I definitely thought they won game two and lost game one. Yeah. Well, I mean, lose, I think they're, they're but, different ways. Yeah, I mean, there are different ways you can kind of spin all these things. I mean, the Bucks played better in, in Game One, I thought, um, and and again, that was mainly a defensive thing. I mean, offensively, statistically, they were better in Game Two, but um, again, it, it just felt like um, it felt like they had like very little margin for error. You know, like when when the Celtics don't turn the ball over um, and get offensive rebounds, and you know, generally make really tough shots. Um, to me, then it feels like the Bucks kind of, you know, the Bucks got beat, right? And um, and and so anyway, I think there are different perspectives on, on these things. But uh, let, let's let's kind of move on from that one. Um, uh, so we have kind of variants of this question that are rotation-related. Um, Ron in the key, that's K-E-E. And by the way, it only occurred to me just like a moment ago that that's like Milwaukee. <laughs> and is that, do people refer to Milwaukee as the key? Is, is that become a thing? I, I'm not know. aware of it. Really Maybe that know. is a thing. Maybe it, it makes sense. Like I could, could be, could be a thing. Um, Ron asked, "What's your rotation change for Game Three? Uh, he also asked, "What's our strat with Bari in the off season? We'll defer the Jabari one for a little bit later. <laughs> um, but so Ron wants to know what what we're doing in the with the rotation. Um, and E Money thirteen twelve E asks, "How would each of you run this team's current playoff rotation? For instance, which eight to ten players, and how would you distribute minutes?" Um, let me let me kind of start with this, and and I'll kind of roll in a couple of these other questions as well that we've got because we got a a bunch of them um, that are kind of like rotation related. Um, are there any changes to the starting lineup you would make at this point? Like, I mean, are you kind of rolling with with the group you've got, or or do you make changes there? And by the way, Bucks in Scotland, Ash Scott at Scottish Buck sixty eight, which. I think by that we know that we're talking about a Scottish Bucks fan. Shout out Scotland. Um, Scottish Buck fan asks, should Brogdon start instead of Snell? Um, that might be one thing that people might talk about, which we've seen happen before Brogdon got hurt. I mean, would you start Brogdon? Is there another change you would make to that starting five um, other than that? Or would you kind of just stick it out with the group you got? I'm pretty good on the starting lineup. Um, they are a plus 10.3 net rating thus far in this series. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I understand Tony Snell's not making a lot of shots, and I understand Eric Bledsoe's been bad. Um, but I don't see how moving either of them out of the starting lineup really helps things. Um, like that unit, the, the starters have been good the entire year. Yep. Like, there's, there's To me, whether or not you've thought Tony Snell's been great, underperformed, gets paid too much, any of those perspectives... He's been fine in the starting lineup, and the starting lineup has been good the, the entire season. Um, it's been good uh, throughout this series, so no, I will not make any changes to the starting lineup. Yeah, I, I would also say the same. I mean, I think unless Joe Prunty was convinced that you know his starters were like like just uh, at some sort of deficit of of not having you know 
being able to be focused or whatever at the beginning of games and then maybe you do something just to shake it up and maybe you know you throw in Brogdon or something but like you said I mean and I think probably a lot of Bucks fans would be shocked by that number because the Bucks have had first quarter deficits in both games but it hasn't been when the starters have been on the court you know the the first few minutes of the of game two they were winning and then I think they kind of went behind once Henson got pulled. And then yep. um, I think I assume it was again, Giannis getting pulled for Jabari, which usually happens about midway through the first quarter to kind of start the staggering. Um, so that happened. And then similarly, I think what the bucks were up, I think 17, 16 at one point in the first quarter of game one. Um, and then I think things actually really went off the rails weirdly enough when Bledsoe went to the bench. So, Again, yeah, as you say, the starting five, I mean, they've been good all year statistically. You know, they've been statistically good in the playoffs. Uh, and you haven't actually started as bad as maybe a lot of people might sort of feel like they have. Um, yep. So I, I would agree. And, and maybe the answer is you run those guys longer. You know, you give them a nine-minute run ding, in the ding, first ding, quarter. Ding, 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 uh, okay, so, so, so let's kind of roll into the what our rotation is. So um, how do you want to do it? Do you want to pick... You, we've already picked our starting five. Do you want to pick your next three guys? I mean, are you going? Are you running eight guys? Are you running nine guys? Ten guys? What, what's kind of your initial thought? Like, are you a really keep the bench short in the playoffs, or are you hey, let's play ten guys and and try to get more of these guys involved? Yeah, let's keep it short. Um, I, I'm doing everything I can to keep the starting lineup together. If that means maybe I do a little bit less staggering like the one advantage going into this series i think everyone including us thought the bucks had was talent right like so i guess the interesting thing for me from game one to game two was in game one you ran essentially a nine-man rotation with the starting five then jabari parker uh tyler zeller malcolm brogdon jason terry and really, Zeller was only in there for four minutes. So, I mean, he's included in the rotation, but really an eight-man, an eight-and-a-half-man rotation. You almost won the game. And then in game two, it was throw everyone from the bench on the floor. And there hasn't been an answer on the bench for a long time this year. Like, if there was an answer on the bench, then maybe that should have been thrown into the starting lineup at some point. Like maybe the starting lineup would have struggled more, but like throughout the entire season, the starting lineup has been your strongest asset. Like that's the best thing you have going for you. And just, I know I talked about it last night, but as I think through it again today, it's just like, I don't understand why you try to, increase the rotation like make the rotation larger it just didn't make any sense to me like what why did you really desperately need to get those players in and uh, i I don't know it it was just kind of weird so i would say eight man is fine with me um again we'll talk about jabari parker later um and whether or not he's a worthwhile player uh thus far i think a minus 14 in game one and a minus i don't even know what it was last night 10 or 12 i think last night um so i I don't know if he's worthwhile but malcolm brogdon certainly um he should be closer to the 32 minutes maybe even more that he played in game one than the 19 that he played in game two which again what was that 19 minutes for Malcolm Brogdon? Like, yeah. he, he's very clearly someone that can handle this. Um, and I know he had four turnovers in the first half. Don't get me wrong. They were frustrating. But that's an adjustment that you make and say, hey, Malcolm, stop trying to throw passes in tight spaces. And then th- those 
those turnovers largely disappear uh, and you get another great 15 minutes out of Malcolm Brogdon. So that one was surprising me. So uh, my perfect rotation, starting five, Malcolm Brogdon, uh, Jason Terry, uh, Tyler Zeller probably for a little bit. And then, uh, I mean, I got to think. That's it. That's- well, that's eight, right? Yeah, so. yeah, but I mean, like Tyler, I I should say my eight and a half would be because I don't know how much I need Tyler Zeller because I want to use yeah. the small ball lineup quite a bit. So he would be my half, and then I got to make a decision between Jabari Parker and Sterling Brown. I'm probably leaning Sterling Brown, um, but I got to think through that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, I mean, I, I was just looking again, just refreshing on 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 off data from this season and again like this stuff even over a course of a season can be noisy right i mean on court off court stuff is has its weaknesses um but i think it is interesting to look at because fundamentally you know again like you know this hints at guys who are able to mesh with different types of players the best um and guys that you know ultimately when they played did the bucks outscore the other guys right which is that's the only that's the only thing that matters right now for the yep. Milwaukee Bucks is can you outscore the other team um, with the lineups that you're running and um, you know the guys that were the best the best marks on the Bucks I mean Shabazz Muhammad shout out to Shabazz Muhammad I tweeted this last night yep. I dogged the Shabazz Muhammad pickup um, you know he looked done in Minnesota he did, he's done pretty much everything you could have expected in terms of the, his numbers at least right I mean he only played 117 minutes yep. there's no way he keeps up kind of the, some of the numbers he put up in that span but i mean he had a higher per than Giannis this year <laughs> yeah. he had a 31 per you know he shot 62 percent true shooting um you know the bucks were plus 12.4 net rating with him on the court um so you know i mean despite playing at shooting guard which i also questioned shabazz i mean good things happen when shabazz muhammad yeah. is on the court um so that that's kind of an interesting caveat. Not that Shabazz would be my first guy off the bench, but just wanted to acknowledge that because he led the Bucks in net rating this year, even though he only played. You know, <laughs> yeah. obviously it's probably because he played very few minutes. It wouldn't hold up over a season. But shout out to Shabazz. The next guy, John Henson, plus five net rating, um, minus three point five off. Bledsoe plus four point seven, minus four point six off. Giannis plus three point five, minus five point six off. And Giannis's numbers really got dragged down the last couple weeks. He had a bunch of negative rating games that kind of dragged that number down, so that's a little bit why. But you know, still the guy that has the biggest kind of net on-off rating, right? The Bucks were over nine points per one hundred worse with him on the bench uh, than with him on the court. Um, after that, Zeller, Middleton, Jason Terry, and uh, the only other guy with a, with so the only guy with zero or positive ratings were uh, Marshall Plumley and Tony Snell. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon and Sterling Brown were barely negative right after that. So. Brogdon, I think, is the obvious no-brainer guy. I would agree. I, I, I wouldn't start Brogdon. I'd kind of go again with um, the starting group that you've got uh, at this point and, and just sort of, you know, again, kind of roll it back with that group. Um, and, you know, especially with the, the group that the, the Celtics start, like, I don't know if I want Brogdon. I, you know, Snell's a little bit, well, they're similar length, you know, the different kind of players. I, I think I still like uh, Snell defending on the perimeter more than I, I like Brogdon, even though Brogdon is strong. I don't just don't think Brogdon's defense has been as consistent as as kind of we've expected over the last year. Mm-hmm. And with Tatum and Brown on the court, um, I think you know again Snell gives you more switchability uh, on the wing. So I'd still start Snell. And again, like you know, it's maybe a game where he hits like four out of five threes, or he may again like take one shot and miss it, right? And that's just kind of the way Snell goes. He's not going to go you know one for eight 
and again, I'm knocking on wood because maybe now <laughs> will. But, um, but yeah, so I think Brogdon's kind of the only no-brainer. Um, Jet is the other guy. Like, I would try to get Jet minutes with Giannis, like in that, like yep. you know, end of first, late, or early second quarter. Like, it, it just seems like Jet has been a guy that turnovers happen when he's on the court going you know defensive turnovers good ones um and he always looks for Giannis I would try to make sure he's on the court with Giannis um and and do it that way and uh you know again like yeah I I would consider giving Zeller a run in part also because I mean he played on the Celtics team last year like I don't know like you would think there's some advantage there right like if you played against Al Horford uh with you know for Brad Stevens in practice all this for a year or a couple years um I mean, that should help, right? Like, Tyler Zeller should know the Celtics and their tendencies better than, you know, anybody else on the Bucks. So I, I would lean towards trying to get him some, some time. But I will say this. One thing I would I would consider doing, right? And I, I in no way expect this to happen. Um, but I would try to, in that, like, late first quarter when Giannis comes back um, or early second quarter or whatever, I would go to the small lineup at that point. And I would yeah. see if you can... I would see if you can uh, get something going against the Celtics when they have um, basically like you know presumably one center out on the court and with Monroe at part of the equation as well you know they have three big men that they're playing so um, they run kind of some different combinations um, so you know last game Baines got pulled early uh, and then Horford and Monroe had a brief overlap at the end of the second quarter. And then Monroe played as the only center early in the second quarter. So that might be an interesting thing would be throw Giannis on the court when Monroe, you know, if if Monroe is out there as the big man with no other center out there, um, what happens if you put Giannis out there? And they put Gershon Yebusele out there at the same time. But if you put Giannis out there um, with, with, again, a small lineup, um, can you... That can shoot. No Shabazz. Well, and, and the one challenge would be the one challenge is it's hard to run a small lineup with Giannis and Chris early in the second quarter because usually Chris is getting a blow at that point. Um, He usually doesn't, he usually plays most of the first and then he doesn't play until like the midway part, part of the second quarter. So, you know, again, maybe the more realistic time to get your like, you know, death lineup, if we can call it that. Um, Or, or maybe it's just not the death lineup, but just the dying lineup (laughs) because the bucks are dying. I don't know. Um, But, uh, but maybe it's maybe it's in the middle, middle to end of that second quarter. Maybe that's when you try to run that group out there. Um, otherwise, I mean, I'm sure Jabari Parker's going to play. Yep. Um, but again, the problem is like, what is our realistic expectation that Jabari Parker is going to like make a positive difference? I mean, there isn't you know, one. If, if he was, you know, the 35th pick in the 2014 draft. There's no way in hell he'd be playing right now, right? He's nope. he's literally just playing on reputation, um, and the hope that he rediscovers something. But you know, again, the problem is to me the problem is not just that he's, and I know we're kind of getting into some of the other stuff here, but the problem is not just that he is um, not playing well, but like I don't I don't do you think if you're Jabari Parker's teammate right now, you're like feeling good about Jabari Parker playing basketball for your team? Hell like, no. I mean, this dude is like. I mean, he's a bad defender anyway, and like. Just... <laughs> also, what message does that send to the other guys yeah. on the team? This guy can play like total garbage and not care. And you know what? 
he'll keep getting minutes. And like for the people that say, well, you should start Jabari Parker to see if he gets his confidence back. What does that do to everyone else's confidence? Yeah. Like, what are you thinking if you're on that team and you're Sterling Brown and you haven't done a thing wrong, you try on defense. In fact, you try so hard that you pick up fouls on defense and you don't get minutes, but this dude does. And he's actively not given a crap for the last month. Like you can't. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's just, it's, I mean, it's bullshit. You know, yeah. like if you're, if you, if you're looking at what, you know, again, if the guy's working his ass off and trying to get right, that's one thing. But, um, again, there's just way too many things I think going on in his head right now. And not enough of them are, you know, play hard, play smart. And, <laughs> and that's why we're seeing what, what we are. Um, I think, uh, I would like to see Sterling be able to get some minutes, you know, again, if, yeah. if for no other reason than to give them a little edge. Um, he's like one of the few smaller guys, like wing guys who actually like really does rebound out of his area and, and goes and gets the ball. And to be honest, that's something that I think has been a problem. Like, you know, it's a cliche, but it just feels like the Celtics go and get the ball. Yeah. <laughs> and the Bucks don't. And Sterling Brown does that. So that might be, might be um, another reason why you'd want to get, um, get him some minutes, you know, um, and I don't know if, if we've seen – we saw, I think, a lot of bad lineups involving Giannis playing with Jet and Sterling Brown um, and sort of like a no – like basically Giannis and like no other starters. Um, I, I think that is, is a very risky lineup, but th- they didn't have Malcolm Brogdon in a lot of those lineups either. Yep. So if you want to do a lineup, for instance, that has Sterling at the three um, and then, you know – Again, maybe maybe that's the time when you, if you don't, you know, if Middleton's resting, maybe that's when you throw um, Zeller in at center, right? And um, I think that group might be interesting again because just you know Zeller has had good chemistry with uh, with Giannis and and those guys. So uh, again, some different thoughts on on the way the rotation could go. Um, I imagine Jabari Parker will play. Um, if if nothing else, getting him into the game like six minutes into it, like I mean. I don't know. Maybe make him wait a little bit longer. I don't think he's deserving. <laughs> like him getting that early call. Like I think at this point is, you know, kind of tough. And unless it's purely to get Giannis staggered from Chris, um, you know, I, again, I think that's the that's the only valid reason. And um, with Giannis, I think maybe this is the game that Giannis plays like forty six minutes. To be, yeah. To be honest. Yep. You know, I totally mean, agree. this is this isn't officially. We're not officially in like technically must win or your season is over. But we're basically at that point, oh, right? We're, there. Yeah. We're, we're, we're beyond sucks to lose. We're in must win, and uh, and so anyway. So anyway, we spent a fair bit of time on that. Um, hopefully, that gives people some sense of of what us, you know, basketball geniuses uh, would do. <laughs> um, our friend time uh, Ty Windish timeout with Ty uh, asked, "Why haven't Giannis at center lineups been as good as all the people who don't follow the Bucks assume they are this season? They've been hardly used in the postseason and didn't seem to work well in the regular season, and that's." very true right it was like minus 11 points per 100 or something like that um that those center Giannis lineups put up uh in the regular season and you know we've talked a little bit about this i I don't know if we need to talk a ton about it but i think the fundamental problem is and you alluded to it uh, i was re-listening to our pod from yesterday you alluded to it when shabazz muhammad was in the game when they went small yesterday they did not go small with the lineup you know the sort of like best small lineup with um chris uh Snell, Bledsoe, and uh, Brogdon. They, for some reason... Which is an awesome lineup, by the way, which should be used in every game this series, like it was in game one, and mysteriously not used in game two. Yeah, but you pointed out, you know, like, like Muhammad's, like, trying to cut a baseline, and it's actually, like, Mm. 
you know, screwing up the Bucks' spacing, things like that. And I think what the Bucks did in Game One was something they haven't done really consistently this season, which is change the way they play when they play small. Oh like I think God. too often, I think too often it's like, oh, we're let's let's do what we always do. It just so happens that we don't have a center on the court, right? And <laughs> let's just run an elbow series with Giannis. What? No, no. Yeah, and, <laughs> You're trying to go small. <laughs> So it's so anyway, um, I think, again, like, you know, you have to try to find the balance of spacing the floor, getting guys on the perimeter. You obviously don't want to completely stagnate. You want to have guys still, you know, moving, interchanging, um, giving the defense something to look at other than just staring, waiting for Giannis to drive. Um, but I think that's that's really the fundamental key. I mean, it's, it, it you know, it, it, it doesn't need to be complete rocket science. Right. And there's there's obviously nuances to it that we're oversimplifying. But um getting Giannis the ball in the center of the court spreading around him and you know again just and and it's too late to like get into you know to get a lot of experience with this because you haven't done it all year but um again it's it's something that uh, long term they have to figure out ways to make it work this series I don't know I mean we'll see if they can but certainly game one was a much better blueprint for doing it than game two yeah i mean i mapped it out in my story at espn wisconsin.com if you want to check it out but they for the final eight minutes of the game final three minutes of regulation and the final five the overtime period that's all they ran the half court outside of sideline out of bounds plays and transition the only thing they did was have eric bledsoe bring the ball up the right side tony snell was ready in the right hand corner Middleton and Brogdon were on the left side, and Bledsoe would bring it down. If they paid attention, he would kick it back to Giannis, and then they'd get into it. If he wouldn't, then he would go in for a layup, or he'd look for Chris on a kick to the corner. And it was simple. It was easy. But the entire time, there was concurrent action on both sides. So if he did give the ball to Giannis, he would then go set a screen for Tony Snell. And then on the left side, Brogdon and Middleton would set some sort of pin down or some sort of screening action with them. And then sometimes Giannis would, instead of attack, he would dribble passively towards them to the left side. And then that would set off a double handoff with him and Chris Middleton, uh, or him and Malcolm Brogdon, you might remember, uh, he fakes one to Malcolm Brogdon, then hands it off to Chris Middleton. And then that was where he got that monster jam in game one, um, with two hands on the easiest pocket pass Chris Middleton's ever thrown in his life. Like the way Giannis at center works is if you scheme for it to work, like you actually create a package that makes sense and takes advantage of him being at center. And again, I, what I just described, I did so very simply. I did so in about a minute, and it's easy, simple basketball. But it worked on – they scored a basket on six of the ten possessions they ran it. Two of the other possessions, they got an open look. Two of the possessions ended up being tougher looks. Um, but still, got looked at the basket and turned the ball over. Like, it's simple, but Giannis at center is such – it can be such a huge advantage that – if you scheme it right, it will work. Yeah, and I, I think the interesting thing would be, um, you know, that it was weird. They, they we saw it fail with a one of the not ideal lineups um, when Monroe and I think Horford were together in the game yeah. uh, at the start of the fourth quarter, and they were able to play through Monroe and get some easy buckets. Um, it'd be interesting to see what would happen if they got Giannis against the Monroe lineup. 
without another big man. Yep. Um, and even that, even if you do put it in, like, okay, so you scheme it kind of, or you plan it just like you said, right? When Monroe comes in and he's the lone center, you immediately bring on Giannis or you bring on that small lineup. First stoppage, do it. Even if it just triggers a timeout from Brad Stevens and gets them out of it, like, is, isn't that a win, right? Like, you essentially played Greg Monroe off the floor, and if only you get two or three possessions of it, I, if you scheme it right, you score on those two or three possessions, and that could be a, a 6-0 run. Like, that, that could be something very quickly that gives you a very quick advantage. And again, Brad Stevens will probably call a timeout and get out of it, but even so, like, that's six points is is not something small in a playoff game. Um, one guy we didn't talk about in the rotations, we did not talk about Matthew Delvadova. Um, and Ready Player 8 uh, asks, uh, why has Delvadova's PT been restricted? Is he out of the plan, or does he still have an ankle problem? Um, probably a little bit of both, I would say. Um, you know, you're tightening rotation. You've got um, you know him coming off an ankle injury that literally he's played I guess now two games, right? Because he didn't play in game one. Yep. Um, we don't know exactly. Has have they said anything about him having a minute limit? I'm not sure if Prunty has said anything. Yeah, to that he was st- before the playoffs. They said he was still on one. Brogdon was supposed to be on one um, before game one. He thought he'd be off it by the end of game t- or before game two. Uh, Delhi was still on a minutes restriction, so I think there's still some restriction there. But also at the same time, now that you have Bledsoe and Brogdon, like there's. Just not really a lot of minutes for Delhi. Yeah, and um, again, Delhi's tough because, on the one hand, um, he's obviously a guy who is going to give you more predictable defense. Uh, he does not have great foot speed. You know that could be a problem if he's having to check, like a Shane Larkin type. Who, yep. you know, the only the only thing Shane Larkin has is is quickness. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just tough because I think, like, especially right now, you don't know what Delhi you're going to get, right? Um, Delhi, if he hits a couple open threes and moves the ball well, and you know is mucking it up uh, in in the trenches uh, on defense and setting screens for Giannis, then that's actually pretty interesting, right? And yep. and he could actually be a really useful player. But I, I just don't know if he's if he's there yet. I don't know if he's got any rhythm. And Delhi, if you know, bad Delhi is is not good. Like Brad <laughs> Delhi is not going to help you win win a game. So um so that's a good question i, I don't know I, I think it's gonna be interesting to see if he if he does come back in in game three if we if we see him at all but certainly joe prunty has shown no hesitation to try to play delhi even uh when bledsoe and brogner are healthy and on the topic of bledsoe uh joe daniker asked same question as asked a month ago would bledsoe be okay playing second string this is an interesting question in the sense that we talked about this like when the trade was rumored and then when it happened um, you know, would it be more ideal to bring Eric Bledsoe off the bench as a sixth man rather than as a starter with Brogdon starting? And I, I think there was a good argument, um, and I, maybe I went so far as to say that it's probably maybe the best fit to play Bledsoe more as the sixth man, you know, lead the offense more versus have to share the ball with uh, Chris and Giannis all the time. Yep. Um, but to be honest, I mean, watching him now over the course of the season, I mean, it's worked well with Bledsoe playing with Giannis and Chris. And I mean, fundamentally, like as a starting point, I mean, Bledsoe is one of your best players. Like you've been really good when Bledsoe has been on the court. You've been bad when he's off the court. Like you shouldn't be trying to figure out ways, regardless of if he has a bad playoff game or not of like, how can we cut Bledsoe's minutes down to 25 minutes a game or something like that? Like, you know, that's, that's not 
going to solve the Bucks' problems, you know, in, in the grand scheme of the universe. So, and, and I, I mean, I would, he's been like totally fine mentally in the playoffs. So, uh, I don't think there'd be any any possible <laughs> adverse effects to totally changing how he plays at this point, right? Like, he's been yeah, fine. Should give him a confidence boost by yeah. making him a six man for the first time in yeah, five years. I'm sure. I'm sure that would. I'm sure that would go over. Yeah, no, um, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I think again, like, there's going to be a, there, there absolutely is going to be a time in Bledsoe's career, and it may be very soon that being a six man is maybe his best role, yeah. um, but I think with this Bucks team we've seen, I mean, they can be very good with him as a starter, and um, the Bucks don't have, you know, I mean, as much as I like Malcolm Brogdon, like, I don't think he's as good as Eric Bledsoe, and, and again, certainly the first couple games of the series haven't shown that, but, um, you know, uh, again, I'm... I'm still more in the camp of Eric Bledsoe as a good player than, you know, because of two games, he, he's not. Um, yep. Jay Ratkowski asks, assuming, assume the Bucks lose the series in any number of games. Aside from the general game analysis you always do, is there anything from here on out you're going to pay attention to that may be relevant for next year or beyond? Um, what do you, yeah, what do you think? I mean, you know, I think obviously we're, we're always have our eyes on this stuff because, I mean, it's not like we're expecting the Bucks to win a championship, so the playoffs are kind of a good testing ground for things for the future. Um, but what kind of jumps out at you most? And um, uh, I, I know we have a massive section on Jabari coming up soon. Cause to me, that might be the first one, but um, is, is, is how, that what you'd want to talk about? Or is there other things that are there other things that you'd want to focus on first? How are you understanding this question? Like stuff that I'm taking from this series that will affect going forward or like just stuff in general? Uh, stuff from this, like what, what can we learn from this series okay, okay. Yeah, that yeah. may impact, you know, roster building, things like that. Sure. Um, again, I, I don't like being, I don't like being a, a slave to a playoff series because, you know, matchups can just be generally good and things can happen. But I do think there's maybe a little bit of sense of relief regarding Chris Middleton uh, in this series, just because he has played so well. And um, again, that could change dramatically in games three, four, five, six, seven, however many there end up being like it could change. It it absolutely could. But uh, to this point, I think he's kind of answered some of those questions and um, whether or not that means the get, that doesn't mean I'm going to max him when his contract comes up uh, in another summer, but I do think there's maybe a little bit of level of comfort that you can have with Chris Middleton that I think throughout this season, certainly in the first half of this season, it corrected itself a little bit in the second half, but there was certainly right. Like the good game versus bad game, bad team, good team splits for Chris Middleton, right? Like you, you were a little bit concerned that he was getting so much of his 20 points and so much of his averages against bad teams instead of good teams. And, uh, I think a, a series, a positive series for Chris Middleton, uh, against someone that coaches as well as Brad Stevens. I mean, I, I think that should, and I guess two guards or two wings, excuse me, that are as good as Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and, I just think, oh, to me, that's one thing that I take from this that I think you got you have to feel some sort of positivity about. And again, I understand the dangers of signing Chris Middleton to his next contract and and all those things. But at the same time, I think it's at least nice to see him have this series, uh, or at least these two games thus far. Yeah, for sure. I mean. 
you know, as Bucks fans, we want Bucks players to play well. Um, and when you think about, you know, these guys as as people who have emotions and feel pressure and have to react to these things, I mean, you know, you're happy that Chris has been able to kind of. I mean, again, not not like you know, two good games in a series that you're down 0-2 like takes the monkey off your back perpetually. And now like yeah. Chris Middleton has you know proven his legacy or whatever. <laughs> I mean, obviously not, but um, certainly he's you know shown that it's not like playing against the number one defense in the league or playing on the playoff stage is something that he's not able to, to rise, uh, to rise the occasion to. And, and so that I think is a, a big plus. And, um, you know, I mean, in the back of our minds, yeah, we were worried a little bit about this, right? I mean, he, he hadn't played well in the previous two playoff series that he'd been in. And, um, as you said, there's, I think some not entirely unjustified, uh, I don't even want to go that far. I mean, not not unjustified. I won't say entirely. I mean, there there is evidence um, that that he has not played as well against good teams as bad teams. So, um, so yeah, I think that's been probably the biggest positive. I think obviously the flip side of this is um, you know if Middleton has kind of reiterated that he is very much the Bucks' second best player, and I think certainly he's looked much more like a viable you know number two on a on a contending team. You know that that whole thing that we always sort of like people talk about yep. um he's certainly made a much better claim that he's you know good enough to be that uh than previously uh and on the flip side i mean chris middleton also looks better because you know the guy who i think everybody has always like wanted to make chris middleton sort of take a back seat to like everyone has you know we always talk and we've done this too like say well if chris middleton could be your third option right yep. um then then how great would that be well implicit in that is that Jabari Parker becomes the second option and obviously we are further from that than maybe we ever have been uh and so you know it's been kind of you know a tale of of two cities here with with Middleton and and Jabari and and probably that has hopefully that has also made us you know if there's any positive to Jabari's struggles it's that it makes us appreciate Chris Middleton uh, a bit more so um so those two guys are the obvious ones we'll talk more about Jabari here in a moment but certainly like you know if Jabari can shake off whatever and actually have um you know a couple solid games i think that would not only be a big boost to this bucks team having a chance in this series but um also you know set up the possibility that this summer won't be like the most awkward thing ever um because right now i mean jabari's barely playing in the playoffs and he's playing horribly and he was coming into this summer like thinking oh maybe i can get you know i mean maybe not a max contract but $20 million a year. And now it's like, who on earth is going to pay him that amount of money? Everybody, you know, they're, they're, I'm sure there's some teams that would look at him and say, we'd love to take a, you know, take a shot on him, give him a chance. Um, but that's probably like, hey, we might, we'd like to have him at $10 million a year and see if our coaching staff can work wonders with him. It's not pay that man all the money and we're going to make him <laughs> the centerpiece of things, right? Like, I mean, you can't watch this no. injuries and all or, or just, you know, bad situation and all. I mean, it's it's all concerning whether you're the Bucks or not. So, um, so anyway, that's a big concern. Otherwise, um, I mean, Bledsoe, certainly, you know, Bledsoe had, I think, fit in better than I think a lot of people gave him credit for, as we've talked about, like the Bucks in terms of, you know, despite their frustrating sort of general play, they've been good with Bledsoe. Bledsoe's actually helped them win games more than many people may want to admit or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, again, it, it would really suck for him and for the Bucks if he goes into the summer, like, embarrassing himself against Terry Rozier, right? I mean, we've yeah. talked about 
if nothing else, you want him to play well in order to at least keep his trade value high. But you know, he's making a spectacle of himself in probably the worst possible way right now with poor play, getting outplayed by Rozier, and then getting into this like pathetic, you know, war of war of words with Terry Rozier. Um, that you know, again, I was just so mystified by when you read it to me live the quote from <laughs> Matt Flaskas last night. So, I mean, those guys have the most to lose. Um, otherwise, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's like the rest of the Bucks roster. Uh, the Bucks' first round pick from last year isn't playing. The Bucks' first round pick from this past season isn't playing. Um, you know, like what? There's nothing to make of Thon Maker and DJ Wilson. Those guys are buried right now. Yeah. Um, Sterling Brown is. You know, we're hoping we can see him a little bit, um, but I don't see this as like some huge swing in terms of his future with the Bucks. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm hoping to see Malcolm Brogdon kind of prove himself and show that he's you know back from from his injury but uh i I don't know i mean it's not like there's other kind of you know guys who who are going to be free agents that the bucks like need to figure out are they paying 20 million to um oh nothing to worry about bucks got everybody locked up yeah well (laughs) but other than the guys we just mentioned um so i don't know i mean what what about you are there other things that you're looking for um in this series in terms of you know what we see on the court and what that means for the big picture I mean, I think you brought up Bledsoe. I think that's him saving face in the next how many ever games I think is huge just because he's been thoroughly embarrassed in two games. Uh, There's not a national TV show that has not clowned him at this point. Inside the NBA, crushed him uh, last night. The jump was laughing at him. Paul Pierce and Trace McGrady were having a bunch of fun with it. Like He's got to play. He's got to find a way to make an impact in the rest of this series because otherwise I I just think that's a borderline disastrous uh, playoff series for him. And no, it just is. It is a disastrous playoff series for him thus far if it continues on at this pace. Um, and it's bad for the Bucks as well because, like you said, maybe there was some trades out there this year that it could be Eric Bledsoe and, I don't know, whatever other assets uh, you may think of uh, with this Bucks team for a better point guard. Or it could have been for a pick. Um, we mentioned the, Celt- or the Cavaliers having the eighth pick uh, of the NBA a draft this year like okay maybe lebron stays and or maybe they're trying to impress lebron and trade for his buddy eric bledsoe but if eric bledsoe is crummy point guard eric bledsoe instead of eric bledsoe's serviceable point guard like then okay then maybe you have a problem there so um i think that really stands out to me and then uh you mentioned jabari a little bit and to me i guess the the final big thing is I, I just want to see Malcolm Brogdon get a chance to prove himself like he did in game one. Like he got 32 minutes in game one. He got 19 minutes in game two. Like that's just not okay. He's got to have 30 plus minutes and he's got to have a chance to go out there and make an impact. And I think largely he will. Uh, but if he is able to, we talked last summer about, Oh, is this the, the high point of Malcolm Brogdon's value as an asset well, if he has a really good playoff series, maybe it wasn't. Maybe this summer is the high point, or maybe next summer. Like, I just want to see him keep growing and keep getting those chances, and uh, for that reason, Game 2 was a disappointment to me. And then all the other role players, my my thoughts on role players are pretty well known that role players that are being coached poorly just aren't going to look good unless they're so talented that they shouldn't even be role players like they should be stars somewhere else then okay maybe they can get through it but if you're a role player and you're not skiing particularly well and you're not put in positions to succeed i don't know how much blame i have for you 
<laughs> All right, next question. Um, do you guys think this is from um, uh, Zav? Uh, that's X A V, like like Zavi, the great uh, Spanish soccer player. Zav ninety, Zav, 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 uh, Zav ninety four, Zav. Uh, that's his handle. Um, asked, do you guys think that Joe Prunty and Co really don't have a clue that going small when Horford is at the five works, or? that switching is the best way to not give up open threes. It's so hard to believe that people who live and breathe basketball wouldn't understand. Um, let me say this generically. I think the problem that the Bucks have had, whoever, whether it's been Kidd or Prunty, with rotations has been probably rooted in a couple things. One, the Bucks are obviously just not a team that they've figured out you know, from a, a practical standpoint, how to maximize his team. The role players, as you've pointed out, you know, don't look great because just, I mean, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Like, there there aren't consistent rotations. There are a lot of guys who probably are, you know, you could argue or, or expect to be deserving of minutes. We know that Jason Kidd and, and I assume Prunty is similar, um, like to give guys chances to play. They don't, you know, neither guy wants to just, like, bury everyone uh, except DJ Wilson um, for like, you know, long stretches. So they just sort of give guys minutes to make sure they're engaged. Obviously part of it's also like what happens in practice, which I think can be a, you know, can be a positive thing because you're trying to keep people engaged and, and motivated. Um, but I think it sort of just leads to this like fundamental kind of instability. And, you know, the bucks, the, the bucks just game to game, you know, quarter to quarter, you just never know what bucks team you're going to get. Right. And, yep. Some of that is probably because like they don't really have set rotations and you know they maybe don't have the deepest team in the world and they just haven't figured out how to play consistently. But I think that also then is sort of the self-reinforcing thing because you know Joe Prunty is is always and and kid and well like you can't just like say we're going to script our rotations and this is what we're going to do right because so often the Bucks are not dictating what's happening on the court and they're trying to be reactive and they're trying to find something that works like oh maybe maybe this guy can can give us a shot in the arm and you know oh I haven't seen this guy or I didn't like what I just saw from that guy so I'm going to try to do this different thing and you know adjustments are good right you want a coach who can see what the other team is doing and then change his lineups to kind of match that but especially in a playoff series I mean you know the opponent like you know you, you you're going repeatedly at the same team like you know, you, you hope that you kind of figure out what things work and then you can kind of go to them and and be consistent with them. And the Bucks have just done the exact opposite, right? It's just throw this guy in, throw that guy in. Well, the other team's going to run. Let's try something else, right? And it's just very reactive and scattered. And again, you know, it's it's just going to be harder for, you know, your players to develop any kind of rhythm when when that is sort of the, you know, the mindset that you have from a coaching perspective. And again, it's not that like, the best coaches like are are playing you know the exact same rotations every game and never trying new things because um, I think the best coaches are are developing rosters and cultures and you know styles of play that allow them to be much more mix and match when they need to be like if a guy's out like look at the Spurs right like you know they'll especially when they had better players like they could just breast their players and play their scrubs and still win by 20 points randomly on, on any given night um so anyway I, I think it's just a hard complicated question um as far as like why the bucks you know just more broadly um don't play maybe rotations that we think make sense and i think it's just sort of 
kind of overthinking to some extent. I think it's inconsistency. And then I think it's like uh, I feel a, a need to be reactive and try to solve problems. Um, and it just sort of turns into like rotation whack-a-mole sometimes. Um, and I think a lot of it is self-inflicted and other parts are, you know, just trying to find an answer. And um, obviously it's just the Bucks are just, you know, as a team, they just, they, they, you know, as we said, the starters work pretty well, but pretty much other combinations, you know, the bench and other like non-starting combinations have been really bad. That's why they've been bad. You know, pretty much, you know, the, their top used lineups are all generally very positive and all the lineups they don't use much never seem to be very effective. Yeah, I think I would question the assumptions, I guess, that are evident in these two questions. Like, does Joe does Joe Prunty and co. really not have a clue that going small when Horford is at the five works? I don't know. I'm not 100% sure it does work with this Bucks team. Like, maybe it does, We've but we've seen Giannis as a small ball center not work for a large part. So I want to see more of it, and I think it had a nice run in game one, uh, but also I saw Giannis as the small ball five at different times with bad lineups, and it hasn't worked. So, uh, and then, or that switching is the best way to not give up open threes. Again, I think generally that's a great way to look at things. With this Bucks team, I don't know. Can they execute switches? I would have a lot of questions of whether or not that they could, uh, because they don't seem to execute much of anything right. Um, so I, I I understand like being upset that Joe Prunty's pr- getting out coached by by Brad Stevens, but at the same time, like I don't know that the things that we think are simple answers. Um, are going to end up being that way because this Bucks team is largely a mess in just about every single way. So uh, I would like to see both of those things, more of both of those things, but also I don't know that I can guarantee that either of them are going to work. Yeah, let's um, let's move on to the next question. Um, Bill Gustafson asked, um, what's the percentage Bucks win one game this series? I actually just looked this up. Um, I've been tweeting out these uh, these kind of series projection mm-hmm. uh these series projections from jacob goldstein um every game and uh people may have seen that uh you know the bucks started the series at a 43 percent chance likelihood to win um i think it dropped to like 27 percent after they lost game one now it's at 16 nice. percent uh, and again like all these projection models are obviously you know like have their have their flaws um, but Jacob does a bunch of great stuff. Like his, he's got a bunch of uh, tons of cool data and, and models that he's built. Um, and for the for in case people are wondering, in Jacob's model, he has a 19% likelihood that the Celtics sweep, a 32% likelihood that the Celtics win in five, 17% they win in six, 16% that they win in seven. Um, meanwhile, the Bucks 7% of the dream. 7% likelihood of the dream, Bucks in six, uh, and 10% likelihood of Bucks in seven. So 32%. You, I don't know if Bill was expecting to be get a numerical answer, um, <laughs> but uh, he's uh, he's going to get one. Um, so so there was that. So um, the percentage that the Bucks would win one game is pretty large. Uh, yeah, if, if it's at least one, it's it's very large, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's actually, and, and again, this sort of. You know, speaks to the fact that obviously it's it's difficult to sweep any team. Um, obviously, the Celtics have already won two games, so you know they've got that in their back pocket. But the odds of them winning two straight games on the Bucks' home court, uh, Jacob has that at is only nineteen percent at this point. So um, you know, again, I, I, I man, I just really hope the Bucks win Game Three. You know, yeah. I, it would just and it's it's crazy to think last year. I mean, 
the Bucks win in Game One and the Bucks win in Game Three of that Toronto series. Are are those the two best wins the Bucks have had in the last calendar year? Yeah. I mean, it's scary to say that, right? Yeah. But that's a big reason why. Yeah. I mean, that's why obviously, like, I think there's so much, there's so much kind of more like negativity this year than last year. Is that, you know, the Bucks last year played a more talented team than they are playing this year, and in the first three games they put together like two just terrific performances. Yep. And we can say that Toronto also played really badly, but whatever, you know, part of that was the Bucks actually playing well. So, yep. um, all right, moving on to the next question. Um, Caleb uh, Kaselki, Caleb, sorry if I mispronounced that. Um, Caleb asks, why is Shabazz playing over lockdown oh, Sterling Brown? Oh, it hurts my heart. Oh. Yeah. Like, I don't have an answer for that. Like, if I did, I wouldn't be talking about Sterling Brown as much as I talk about Sterling Brown. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the weird part is, like... And maybe Shabazz exactly. isn't even the one that I'd be mad about. Like, Shabazz has been yeah, fine. Yeah, Shabazz is kind of ran. I mean, Shabazz, and Shabazz isn't, like, a necessary... Well, I mean, they're both, like... I mean, they've mostly used Shabazz as a wing, which I always think of Shabazz as more of, like, a small ball four, but I guess because he likes to take guys in the post, maybe you're better off playing him against smaller guys. So I, Especially I don't know, on this Bucks team. Player. A wing yeah. that likes to post up, yeah, like, make him smaller. God. I'm shocked that Jason Kidd didn't want to like give <laughs> the farm for him like two years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's an exact sort of swap. I mean, keep in mind, Shabazz didn't play in game one either. Um, I think the most common thing people will complain about is, is Jason Terry playing over Sterling Brown. Um, but again, to be honest, I mean, it's one of those things. It's like we always are waiting for guys to outplay Jason Terry. And for some reason, like the Bucks can't find young guys who are better than, than Jason yep. Terry. Uh and again, I don't think it's it's a matter, only a matter of time. I think with Sterling, um, arguably he is already. Um, but again, it's it's tough. You know, I mean, he's a rookie, um, and you're putting him in a high pressure situation where, especially you know, the Bucks get down, and you know, it's like you if you put Sterling in, it's kind of a desperation thing. Like, okay, Rook, you know, like in the fourth quarter, like you got to help us get back in this game. No pressure. You've never been on the stage. Um, and again, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully we do see a little bit more of him because certainly uh, defensively, I do think he brings a nice edge. And, and, you know, again, we always say on the defensive boards, he, he does do some nice stuff. Where Sterling um, stands, that's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, we already had Bucks in Scotland's question. Um, Zach Carson asks, just wanted to hear your thoughts on the Bucks re-signing Prunty to a three-year deal. Just kidding, LOL. But seriously, should he consider starting Jabari to get his confidence back mentally? And this, um, we're about to to get into Jabari stuff. I'll, I'm going to pair this with a question from Ryan Namer. That appears to be Ryan's real name. Uh, it's like Eric name, but with an ER at the end. Um, <laughs> and in German, by the way, it's like uh, like take and taker. Yep. So, and uh, Ryan asks, why does Prentry show Snell so much love and Brown none? When Brown may not be a better shooter, but is by far a better player. Well, let's just um, chill out on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Sterling is really shown to be a far better player. He's definitely a better rebounder. Um, he commits probably a lot more fouls than than, yeah. than uh, Tony. I did, um, just one thing I want to say about Tony Snell. Everyone uh, kills him all the time. He shot 40% from three this year. It's so funny. Shot 40% from three. And I think the volume was a little bit less than last year. I would have to go back and check exactly what his points per game and stuff were like that. But Tony Snell is put on the floor for a couple of reasons. One, to chase around whoever the other team's best wing slash point guard is, which he's done in this series with Jason Tatum. 
and I don't know if anyone noticed Jason Tatum's game two, but didn't go so well. Um, also, he was eight of eighteen for nineteen points in game one. So, like, not not the best game Jason Tatum's ever had. Um, no. So, Tony Snell's doing that part of his job. The other part of Tony Snell's job is to stand in the corner or stand in the wing and make sure people cover him. And you know what? He does a pretty damn good job of it. Even on the nights he goes 0 for 3 and passes up threes, which upsets me, even on those nights, he's got quite a bit of gravity. So bringing in someone else, Sterling Brown has been passing up open threes just as regularly as Tony Snell and also yeah, doesn't he have... always wants to dribble drive yes. off of... And also, like marginal looks. Yep. And also, he doesn't have the reputation of Tony Snell, so he's not creating those same type of looks. And for the people that say, "Well, put Jabari Parker in the starting lineup because you need more scoring," one, you don't need more scoring. The Bucks score just fine. Two, he wants to wander to the baseline. He wants to try to find himself in the short corner. He ruins the Bucks spacing. So Tony Snell has two jobs. He executes both those jobs every single game. Like, there's never a question of whether or not Tony Job Tony Snell will take on the job of chasing around the other team's best player and providing space on the floor. Period. Whether or not he makes shots, he executes those two things. If you feel confident that someone else on this roster can execute those two things, I would love to hear about it because I don't believe you. Well, the other nice thing is also that um, Tony Snell, if you can just not give Tony Snell the ball and afterwards, like, nobody's going to be worrying about Tony Snell not getting touches nope. and being pissed off and uh, you know becoming a problem or Correct. you know whatever um so yeah i mean and, and again sterling brown you can say the same thing about right like Sterling's obviously going to do whatever whatever you want him yeah. to do um and so i think he's the best i think sterling brown's the best i think he's you know if you're going to talk about like tony snell shouldn't be playing i think the best guy to say sh- should be taking some of his minutes would be sterling brown um and, but they're they are kind of different players um i think sterling is probably the guy who can give you the most of what uh of what tony does um but again a lot of it's just sort of trust factor of you know someone who can execute what you want defensively uh and then also um be a guy that as you said you know if he gets a shot I and mean, again he hasn't done it this series but i mean it's kind of interesting too i mean since the all-star break tony snell shot 38 percent from three he shot 46 percent from three in march like i think there's this perception that snell's like just sucked for the last like four months or something like that or like he hasn't been able to hit a shot and like it's not not the case like he's actually shot the ball well like in aggregate this season and he's been had some streaky moments for sure but um a lot of that i think as well is because he just doesn't take many shots so you know when you only take three shots a game like sometimes you're gonna go for three and and i wish tony would go at least two for four every game but um again like for a guy with a really limited role it you know, again, I'm, I'm not saying it's it's like some great situation, but um, I don't think he's like the root of the Bucks problems. Like if you're trying to defend Jabari Parker by saying like, well, Tony Snell's been bad. Like, no, <laughs> Tony Snell is like not been anywhere near what Jabari has been in terms of, of impact uh, from a negative standpoint.